Zephaniah 3 and verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame. For all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment and has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. Brilliant. Let's pray together. No one can quite roll their R's like the Welsh, can you? Did you love that? I want to see the gospel rampaging through Denby. And then, can you roll an R in the word glory? It's quite hard to roll an R in the middle of a word, but she pulled it off. Let's, uh, let's pray. We're looking at some beautiful verses from the scriptures tonight from Zephaniah chapter 3. Um, if you've been with us for the whole series, um, it's been a real roller coaster, hasn't it? We've been in a dark place at the start of the series in Zephaniah 1, looking at the terrible judgment of the Lord coming. Uh, last week, it picked up a bit as the Lord laid before us the challenge. Would we, would we seek him? Would we seek justice, his righteousness? Would we seek humility? And we're going to end far higher than we descended to tonight as we look at Zephaniah 3. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your word that is truth and life. And we ask now that as we come to it again, we'd hear your voice. You'd speak into our hearts. And as you speak, so you'd fill us with such a glorious vision of all you promised for us in the Lord Jesus, that we might have hope in this world and security for the life to come. For his name's sake, amen. So there are a few slides that will follow through on the sermon. I'll put a question up on the slide. It's this, what are your hopes for the future? Because I think a lot of us have got slightly less optimistic over the last six months. I think that's true of our nation. The combination of the terror attacks 
and then that the fire in Grenville has meant that I think we're less hopeful about our future. We're more pessimistic. Uh, you throw the insecurity of Brexit into the equation, and people aren't quite sure what's around the corner. Uh, you'll hear often now on the news people say, well, the baby boomers, they've had it best. That's the generation born just after the war. Then Generation X, people like me, born between 1961 and 1980, we've had it pretty good. We've seen economic growth. But Generation Y, that the millennials, people in their 20s now, well, we're not quite sure what the future will hold for them. Will it be as comfortable and secure and as affluent as we've enjoyed? Some people are getting very worried about the future. I read this in my newspaper uh, yesterday, my newspaper magazine. Nick Lederer is in his late 30s, and he's doing very well for himself. He's an investment banker in the city of London and lives with his wife and three children in a house in Chelsea, last valued at £3.2 million. He goes to the gym eats healthy food, likes a fine red wine, and has a full, a five full-size military NBC suits, short for nuclear, biological, and chemical suits, a one-week supply of mineral water, and a pile of tin food stacked with gas and a barbecue in the cellar. That's because Nick Lederer, like an increasing number of successful people in the UK, is preparing for the end of the world. It's an article all about preppers, and apparently... Not just in America, but in this country as well, people are increasingly preparing for carnage in our culture, in our society, the end of the world as we know it. But what about on a more personal scale? What are your hopes for your life, your plans for your future? Because we've all got dreams, haven't we, of a better life to come. We don't sit here thinking, well, it's only going to get worse. You might be young, free, and single and hoping for that special relationship sometime in the future. You might be setting out on the world of work and looking forward to finally having some money and, and that money increasing as time goes on. It may be that you've got young kids and you're looking forward to the day that they go to school or at least can wipe their own bottoms and life will get easier. At the end or end of life, perhaps it's coming to the end of that treadmill of work. For finally having more time to enjoy the grandchildren or the garden or those foreign holidays? Or what are your hopes for the future? Because all the way through the book of Zephaniah, we've seen that he's looking forward to this day called the Day of the Lord. It's the future God promises. It's the future that the Bible says we will all face, that every human being in history will face. The day when God holds all people to account. It's where we ended last time in Zephaniah 3.8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord. In other words, wait for that day when I come. For the day I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger, a day when God will judge. And we saw Zephaniah in chapter 1 had a particular warning for the complacent among his people, that the wind for a shock if we just get on with life as though nothing will ever change, if our hopes and our dreams are invested in our pension fund and increasing property prices, because on the day of the Lord, lip service without life service will lead to us facing the terrifying wrath of God. And so we need to be silent before him in the face of that coming judgment. 
and to listen to his gracious warning. Yet on the other side of the coin, we saw last week that that day will be the day when the Lord fulfills all his promises to his people. The promise of a beautiful world and a future of peace living within it, a creation without any of the things we fear. If only, said the Lord, you'll gather together and seek me. If you'll seek righteousness, if you'll seek humility, that future will be yours. And as we end, what Zephaniah does is to paint now that glorious future that the Lord will make for his people. Now, just to remind you where we are in history, it's around 638 to 628 BC, probably that decade that Zephaniah's writing in, the Lord is prophesying through him in. There's a lad on the throne of the people of God who are, who are now just a small nation called Judah. That's all that's left of them. This lad's name is Josiah. He's a good boy. He's going to reform the land. But because of his bad granddad Manasseh, the people have been told God's judgment is coming in the form of the Babylonians. And it does in 596 and 586 BC. Judah is wiped out. And the best of the people, the, the intelligentsia, if you like, are taken off into exile in Babylon. And so as Zephaniah talks about this glorious future of restoration, the restoration, we think, well, is this them coming back from Babylon to enjoy Jerusalem again? But, but it's not. Right from the outset, it's something far bigger. Now, this is the future for all of God's people on the day when all people will see Jesus as Lord. So let's see this glorious future, a future where Everything that we hate and fear will be gone forever. A future that's certain because it's God's work, not ours. So in one way, just sit back and enjoy a picture of what will be yours if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, solely because of God's grace to you. Because it is actually us the Lord starts with. Here's the first thing. The Lord's people, purified and at peace now, my, my greatest desire for my future is that I'd be the man I long to be. You know, I spent my life meeting people nicer than me. You, you can agree with that later if you want. And I long for the day when I won't feel the shame of my sin. The day when I'll go to bed at night without any regrets. The day when I won't wish that there's a, a rewind button on life, so I could have that conversation again, as though, as though saying the things a second time, let alone a 70th time, I might finally get it right. The day when the battle against sin will be over. Did you see what Zephaniah said? The Lord said through Zephaniah in verse 9, I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. In one way, we have a taster of that. Today, God purifies his people, as Jason's already said, as they come to trust in the Lord Jesus. We can sing his praise. We are brought together from all different parts of the world. We serve him shoulder to shoulder. But on that day, all we'll want to do is call on the Lord in praise. It'll be the true United Nations. But verse 10 shows us that. People gathered from the farthest land, every tribe and tongue and nation, brought together by God, transformed into those who love to give their lives to his glory. Verse 11 literally says, On that day she will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done me. 
see, Jerusalem here is used as an example for all God's people. She. That's the way the church is described. She. All people will not be put to shame for the wrongs they've done me. See, the very people who've personally rejected and grieved their loving Heavenly Father will not be put to shame for that. You know our sin's always personal, don't you? Did you see that in the verse? For the wrong they have done me. Sin's always personal. It's not just disobeying a set of sort of rules out there. It's not just choosing to indulge ourselves. You see, every time I choose to disobey God, it's personal. I'm saying to God, you don't know best. You are not good. And you do not love me. And yet God cleanses people who treat him like that. But he doesn't put them to shame. In verse 11, he cleanses his people both by removing from them those who are arrogant and and don't really trust in him. Do you see that? Because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But he also does it by cleansing those who do trust in him, making them perfect. Those who struggled with a a weak and, and wavering faith, well, he transforms them. Did you see that in verse 12? But I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. And meek has that idea of relying on the Lord. Humble, the idea that you recognize your failures, your frailties. Jesus actually said much the the same thing in Matthew 5, in that famous passage of the Sermon on the Mount. He, He said this, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the humble, the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they are sinners before a holy God. And verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those who know that they're dependent on God for everything. You see, if you're not a Christian here tonight, you need to understand that the Lord's people in the Bible are never perfect. We had a couple around this week, you know, to chat about some of the things in marriage. And what was lovely was the way that they asked me questions saying, look, um, Daph, how is it that you control your, your anger? And, and, you know, when you have those frustrated and ungodly thoughts, how is it you continue to be kind and loving to boo? <laughs> and I, I just had to say, I, I don't. I didn't. But that's the nature, isn't it? Poor in spirit. John Newton, the man who wrote that uh, hymn, Amazing Grace, said at the age of 82, this very famously, my memory is nearly gone, but two things I remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour, the meek, the humble. And that's why verse 12 and 13 is so precious, because do you see what the Lord will make people like that? Look at verse 12 again at the end. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. Or literally, they will take refuge in his name. They will throw themselves wholeheartedly on his promises day in, day out. Not wavering in their trust, but knowing there is nowhere better to go than the arms of their loving God. And verse 13, they will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. Our actions will only be good. Our words will only be true. We'll only say kind things. We'll we'll only encourage others. Our lives and lips will be transformed. 
There'll be no regrets and no shame and no guilt. We'll be a perfect people. And the result is we enjoy a perfect peace. Did you see at the end of the verse? They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Do you know when you, you relax over a meal? When you sleep really deeply? It's when you know you're safe. It's when you're so secure. When you literally have all the time in the world. Because you're not anxious about the future. About what you have to do. Or what you have to achieve. Or what you have to become. About how you look. Or or how the kids are doing. Or what's happened to your aging parent overnight. No, no, you're in a perfect world. No fears, just peace. Can can you imagine that? Can, Can you imagine a life of no pride and no wrong, no lies and no fear, a life where all you are is humble and righteous and truthful and secure and permanently at peace? Don't don't you want to be that person? It isn't so much of the misery in our lives because we're not that person. I long to be that person. And do you know, do you know one day, I will be. I will be. You will be. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is God's work in us. Uh, This chapter is is riddled with one of the most precious little expressions in the Bible. It comes again and again. It's probably the most repeated expression in the Bible in this chapter. I will purify. I will remove. I will leave. I will, says the Lord. I will, I will, I will. There's nothing here about you have to. It is only I will. A promise. You see, the only world that will work is a world filled with people who are the way that they should be, how they were created to be. And it's only in a world of sin-free people that you can enjoy this sort of safety and peace. And that includes a sin-free you and a sin-free me. And when you experience what God does for you, then, then there can only be one response. You see, when God makes you like this, there's only one thing that you want to do in response. And it's the second thing we see. The Lord's people rejoicing and rejoiced over. Look at verse 14. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but in general, I don't find people who tell me to be happy very helpful. You know, when someone says to you, cheer up, usually you want to punch them. That's, that's the sensible thing to do, because it doesn't help. Why should I be happy? Why should I rejoice? Well, you won't find any better reasons to rejoice in the world than the reasons in verses 15 to 17 of Zephaniah 3. Rejoice with all your heart. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. He's dealt with the enemy within. He's dealt with your sin. He's taken away the punishment that you deserve from him. That's why, by the way, way, if if you're not a Christian, Christians love singing about the death of their God. 
That the heart of joy is the cross where our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died. Why? Because even though he is the one through whom and by whom and for whom the whole world was made, the one who we owe everything to and the one who we have deeply and daily offended personally, he so loves us that he goes to a cross to take his own righteous anger that should be ours upon himself. The one who we've offended takes our offense. And he's dealt with the enemy without. Death. That's the result of sin. Our death, death in the world, because Jesus died our death for us. And he's dealt with the enemy of the devil. The one whose lies we believed. The lie that actually life would be much better if we lived it for ourselves and rejected our loving God. The one who loves to tempt us and the one who loves to accuse us afterwards. Really, you should disobey God. And then he says to us, you've sinned again. You've disobeyed God. How how could you ever be loved by him? And yet at the cross, Jesus defeats him once and for all. Because he proves that the God I have disobeyed loves me despite my sin. Rejoice with all your heart. See, the cross, we've been loved with an inexplicable love, an everlasting love. That's why actually the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, when God's people are gathered together worshipping, do you know who they're gathered around? A butchered lamb. Jesus is pictured as the sacrificial lamb who was slain, still bearing the scars of the cross. Because our God has been punished for us. His The next reason, rejoice with all your heart. Verse 15, the Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again would you fear any harm. The one who rules all he has made with you. There's no one else to fear because because there's no one stronger. There's no one outside his sovereign control. There's no situation that he doesn't rule over. Now, we know that's true now, objectively, if we're Christians, We know we have nothing to fear. You've heard people say that before. Regularly they've said to you, oh, you know, most common command in the Bible, do not be afraid. We know that, don't we, objectively. But on that day we'll know it subjectively. We'll constantly feel the truth of it. That's what he says in verse 16. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. Sometimes I manage to create weeks where I just can't see how I'm going to hold life together. I actually get breathless and feel pain in my chest. And before you reach for the defibrillator at the entrance over there, it's not a heart problem, it's a stress issue. Do you know that experience where life just seems to be charging at you? You're caught in the headlights of life and you freeze and you just can't see how you're going to get out of the way? But on this day, I will finally fully know that the Lord has my times in his hands. I'll know it, and I'll never be afraid again. I won't think it's up to me. You won't think it's up to you. Do you see, it's repeated again in verse 17. The Lord, your God, is with you. And what sort of God is he? The mighty warrior who saves. 
And we'll know that he's mighty to save because where we will be, we'll be surrounded by a great multitude of people we've never ever met before from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a multitude we can't count stretching on into the distance. There aren't enough chairs in the history of creation to sit on. We'll be standing anyway. The Lord is mighty to save. But, but the most extraordinary reason to rejoice comes at the end of Zephaniah 3.17. Do you see this one? Rejoice with all your heart. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Literally, it says, he will be quiet in his love. I think it probably has more of a sense of the Lord quiet, still, not speaking, almost in wordless adoration over the beauty of what he has made through his creative and redemptive sovereign love. It might be, it might be slightly blasphemous to say this, so, so forgive me if it is, but, but I think it's the sense of the Lord speechless before the beauty of what he's made, speechless as he looks down upon us. Speechless, but not songless, because he sings. You see, the God who we have so deeply failed, so deeply disobeyed, loves us so much that he makes us into something so beautiful that he sings over us. The God whose world we have wrecked with our sin sings because we are his people. The God whose image we have so marred in us through, through the ugliness of our actions and, and the cruelty of our words restores us to the image of his Son, washes us clean, and then conforms us perfectly to the likeness of Christ. Because in the end, it's not that God sings over you and me as we are in ourselves. No, he sings over us because he has finally, in the Lord Jesus, brought us back to that most glorious thing we are created to be, a person made in the image of God. He's conformed us totally to, to the likeness of his Son. See, that's to be the Lord's eternal attitude over you if you're a Christian. The Lord's eternal attitude over you. He will spend forever, we will spend forever, with the joy of the Lord's song ringing in our ears. We will sleep and we will wake to the beautiful chorus of our God. That is all we will know. As we sing and rejoice in him, so he delights to rejoice and sing over us because of what he's made us. Now, that's what history is about. That's what history is about. That is what the Lord is doing in the creation. That, that's all that matters in history. That's where we're going. That, that's what science is about. You know, all this understanding of our planet, why, why things happen the way they are. Well, the only reason that the, the world is the way it is is so that future becomes a reality. 
where we will sing over the Lord and he will sing over us. It's what philosophy is about. It's why our minds are the way they are and why the universe is the way it is is so that that day happens when that is all we will know. The Lord's people gather together in perfect joy because they know he has dealt with their punishment, but because they know him rejoicing over them. That forever. And on that day, do you know everyone will know that? Because this is the last thing to say. The Lord's people will become the praise of all the earth. Now, the verse 18 is a little tricky. And I'm not going to pretend to you that my Hebrew is any good to help me whatsoever. I think the translation that seems to make the most sense is this. I will gather those who grieved because of your appointed festivals, the one who in imp- the imposition was a reproach. In other words, what we've seen in Zephaniah is this constant warning. If you claim to be one of my people, but actually your heart is not given in humble service to me, then you're not really one of my people. And here, the Lord says, I'm going to cleanse from my people all those who basically think that worshipping me is a bit of a drag. I mean, they've gone along with it, but it's all a bit of a bore. It's a bit like the same principle we saw back in verse 11, where the Lord says, I'll get to purify everyone who wasn't really humble before me, but thought they could sort their own lives out. And as he purifies his people on the outside, then he purifies the heart and the action of the true believer. And often, that's a purity coming to people who've suffered for his name. Have a look at verse 19. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. Suffered shame. That's what the Lord expects to happen to his people. Do you know Jesus said this in John 15? John 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. You see, if you live for God in a world that has rejected him, you will be rejected. If you seek to proclaim the truth about God in a world that has oppressed it, you will be oppressed. You see, the Lord's people are not impressive and admired in the Bible time and time again. They're the lame. They're the scattered. And I think that's what it increasingly feels like to be a Christian in our world today, in the Western world, an exile, not quite at home in the London of 2017, but because the attitudes and actions of our culture around us seem so alien to us. And if you're not feeling an exile, well, the concern is... Are you conforming too much to the world? I mean, is it only me? Or do you also feel a little bit like, increasingly, you just don't fit in? You go to the BBC News website, and you think the things that you value and believe in as I read the news are just not the things I value and believe in. I was chatting to one mum recently. She was very honest. And she said, look, I'm afraid for my kids. Do you know why she was afraid for her kids? Not because she didn't think they'd get a good education or she didn't think that they'd grow up healthy. She was afraid because she had realized that for them, 
growing up following Christ in this culture would mean they didn't fit in. And what do you want when you kids go to school? You want them to fit in, don't you? You don't want to be the kid that's on their own getting bullied in the playground. But she realized if they were going to live for Christ, they would not fit in. They wouldn't be able to get necessarily the jobs they wanted. They were going to find life hard. I helpfully told her I think they were going to find life worse than hard. So we need to get used to a world that mocks us. That's actually the normal life of God's people, the normal Christian life. They mocked Jesus. They spat upon him. They lied about him. And even though he never did anything wrong, they crucified him. And so if we follow Jesus, that is the road we will walk. You see, that that glorious promise of, of verse 19, I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. That promise is so much more real to our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. If you're a Christian in Pakistan tonight, you do not know that you are safe from your neighbors, from the authorities. That promise is so much more real to our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia who, who meet in fear, in secret, if they meet at all. That promise is so much more real to our brothers and sisters in Eritrea. But I think that promise is going to become more and more valued by us. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. Because on that day, do you see what the Lord promises, verse 19? At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Praise and honor in the very place where you've suffered shame. And then the praise and honor escalates. Praise and honor then amongst all the peoples of the earth. In other words, there will not be a place in the world where it will not be that Christians are recognized as having served and worshipped the true and living God. Because there won't be a place in the world where Jesus is not Lord. The cry in New York will be, Jesus is Lord. The cry in New Delhi will be, Jesus is Lord. The cry in every university across the earth will be, Jesus is Lord. The cry at a broadcasting house of the BBC will be, Jesus is Lord. The cry in Mecca will be, Jesus is Lord. And we will bask in the praise and the glory of our God. We'll be caught up in an honor and praise that's his. 2 Thessalonians 1, we we looked at last week. It's on the screen. Let me just read you verse 9 and 10 again. Talking about the day when the Lord Jesus comes, talking about those who've oppressed his people, Paul writes, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who've believed. This includes you, because you've believed our testimony to you. You see, all those who've rejected the gospel, punished by God. But but do you see where the Lord Jesus is glorified? In his holy people. He is glorified in you. And do you know what God tells us to call the place where we will know that praise and honor for eternity? 
the place where all the, the shame and the pain will end. Did you see what he called it in verse 20? I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. That's what God calls it. Home. It's the place where we belong. It's the place where we're going. The place where all the struggles will end. It's where we will be the people we will long to be. It's where we will only know joy forever. It is home. It's the place where we will live in safety. That's what home should be, shouldn't it? That's what you love about going to home now. It feels safe and familiar. And and sometimes it's like when you sit down in your favorite armchair at home, there's just a a sort of involuntary physical response. You know, all the struggles of life, they're still going on. But because you're sitting in your favorite armchair at home, it's all right. Take that feeling of security and, and multiply it infinitely. And that is what this home will be like. And I won't care how loud the music is because it will be the singing of my Lord over me and my singing over him. And do you know why this future is certain? Did you see it again? That repeated word, I will remove, I will deal, I will rescue, I will gather, I will bring you home, I will give, I restore, I will, says the Lord. I will, says the Lord. So what are your hopes for the future? Is this your hope for the future? Because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your future. There is no better future than this. The Bible ends with these words, Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says... Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.